word. Last week, we began a new sermon series where we are looking at how the good news of Jesus radically transforms how we view our money and our possessions. This is something that Jesus spent a good deal of time talking about, so we don't want to shy away from that. Uh, It's because there's a fundamental connection between our hearts and our stuff. For so many, their stuff has wrapped chains around their hearts, and while they may be relatively wealthy, they're actually slaves to their stuff. Our world teaches us uh, that uh, the more we have, the more free we'll be. But it seems that the more money and the more stuff we have, the more of a, a gravitational pull that has on our hearts. And for many in our world today, to, to give money away, to give possessions away, feels like a loss. But what if, what if we could flip that script? What if we could actually see the giving away of our money and our possessions as a gain and not a loss. That would be transformation. And I, I want to show you how this is possible in our text today. We're actually going to be looking at two different texts today, so it's a little bit different for me and for us. Uh, the first one is one of the shortest parables that Jesus ever told. It's only one verse. Okay, So we're going to look at this brief parable that Jesus told, and that parable will lay out for us a, a principle of this joyful transformation. And then we're going to look at a very well-known story from Jesus' life uh, that will color in this principle for us and show us what this looks like in real life. So let's go there now. Grab your Bibles, get them out. Uh, please turn with me to Matthew 13, verse 44. That's the first place we're going to be. And then we're going to Flip over to Luke chapter 19, verses 1 to 10. So put a finger there and then turn over uh, to Matthew 13, 44. If you need to use a pew Bible, you'll find uh, the first text today on page 974, and our second text will be on page 1043. And once you're there, I invite you to stand with me as a symbol that we stand under the authority of God's word And uh, we read it with reverence. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. He entered Jericho and was passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to that place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when he saw it, or when they saw it, they all grumbled, he has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, 
The half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This is God's word. Pray with me. Father, your word is powerful and effective. With your word open on our laps this morning, and as it enters into our minds, may the Holy Spirit work through your word to open our hearts to love Jesus more today. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So one thing you need to know and understand about parables is that they are, by design, intended to communicate a single main idea. So you need to know that if, if you press them too hard, uh, you can get into some trouble uh, by looking for multiple meanings or allegorizing every nuance. You're going you're gonna to get into trouble because that's not what parables are intended to do. Okay? They're intended to communicate one big main idea. For example, this, paragra- this uh, parable here doesn't teach that the kingdom of heaven can be bought with earthly treasure. That's not something that the Bible teaches, and that's not the point of this parable. The point, the, main, uh, the man uh, selling all his possessions, the point of this is to show where uh, his heart is. It's the, the point is to show where the treasure of his heart is. This parable tells us that this man valued the kingdom of heaven more than anything else in the world. Because of this, he receives it. So I want to explain, uh, the way I would explain the main idea of this parable is that the kingdom of God is so valuable that it's worth losing everything on earth to have it. That's the main idea. And this is what Zacchaeus came to understand in Luke 19, and it transformed him, it changed him, it made him joyful, and it radically reoriented his heart regarding his money and his possessions. So as we look at Zacchaeus and consider the treasure of the kingdom of heaven, my main points this morning will answer three questions, and they are these. First, what is the treasure? Secondly, How do we buy the treasure? And thirdly, how does this treasure change us? So let's jump right in. What is this treasure? The kingdom uh, is a major theme in Jesus' teaching that Matthew highlights in particular. But what is the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God? Those two uh, uh, phrases get thrown around and they're really interchangeable or synonymous terms, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. We often tend to think of a kingdom in terms of land or a place on the map. But when Jesus teaches about the kingdom of God, he's talking about the rule and the reign of God. Jesus talked about the kingdom in in two different ways. First, he taught that the kingdom is here and now and it's among us. Luke 17 verses 20 and 21 highlight this. I'll read it for us. Uh, Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, 
For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Okay? So the kingdom of God is here among us now in one sense. But on other occasions, Jesus spoke as if the kingdom of God was still yet to come. For example, Jesus taught us in the Lord's Prayer to pray, Thy kingdom come in a future sense. Theologians call this the already but not yet nature of the kingdom. So the best way to understand the kingdom of God is to see it uh, as being anywhere where the rule and the reign of God is acknowledged and submitted to. So in that sense, the kingdom is here among us in the hearts of everyone who submits to the rule and the reign uh, of the Lord. But uh, we also know that it's still yet to come because there are, are many who do not acknowledge the rule and the reign of the Lord. They do not declare that Jesus is their king. And they reject him. They refuse to submit to him. But there will be a day. There will be a day when Christ returns and the scriptures tell us that every knee will bow Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen. We long for that day, don't we? Now, listen to how the Apostle Paul describes the kingdom in Romans 14. He says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating uh, and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. I think that we can understand the kingdom of God as almost being synonymous with our salvation. Because it's the rule of God that triumphs over anything and everything that stands between you and peace with God and everlasting joy. And this is what is meant by the kingdom of heaven here in Matthew 13, 44. It's a treasure to come under the reign and the rule of God and to know everlasting peace and joy. This is the treasure. That's the treasure. This man sells everything to possess. But how do we possess it? Or, or how, do we, how do we buy it? I already explained that uh, this parable does not teach that we actually buy entrance into the kingdom, whether by material goods or by accumulating uh, good deeds in some way. That, that is not how it works. But there's this really curious verse in Isaiah 55, verse 1, that uses this language of buying and connection with being satisfied in the Lord. Uh, Isaiah writes, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money. Come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. So let me show you how this works in the story of Zacchaeus. Verse 2 tells us that Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector. He was a rich man. This is really fascinating because toward the end of the previous chapter, Luke records a different story about a different rich ruler who would not give all that he has to the poor to follow Jesus. And then Jesus teaches his disciples that it's impossible for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. 
And that's, what, that's what's meant by that, uh, by what Jesus says about the, the camel entering. It's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle uh, than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. He's not saying that it's really hard. Uh, and some people may try to say to you that there's this pass in, in, uh, in Israel where you know, a camel, you, know, you had to take all the packaging off the camel and it had to get down low and it was really hard to get in there. That's not true, okay? So if you've ever heard that, that's completely untrue. Uh, so what Jesus is trying to say there is, though, is that it's impossible. It's impossible. And the reaction of the disciples tells us this. But Jesus goes on to say, what is impossible for man is possible for God. And so here now we have in Luke 19 the story of another rich man for where the impossible happens through God in his life. Understand that Zacchaeus' God was his wealth. Remember last week we talked about how if you were a tax collector in Jesus' day, you were considered a traitor by the Jews because you were essentially working for the enemy, the Romans. And not only that, tax collectors were notorious for collecting more than they should. Basically, they were robbing their own people. Essentially, if you were a tax collector... You sold your soul to get rich. They didn't care about their people. They didn't care that they were collecting money for the enemy. They only cared about getting rich. This is why tax collectors were despised. And if you think about it, this is why Zacchaeus is in the tree. Notice in verse 3, it says that he was seeking to see Jesus, but on account of the crowd, he could not. This really struck me this week, because as a kid, hearing the story of Zacchaeus, you know, I always thought, oh, he's in the tree because he's short. You know, he's got to climb a tree. He's, you know, he's not tall enough, right? But no, I think, it's, I think we're missing something here if we think purely in that way. Think about this. Have you ever been in a crowd of people? Uh, I've, I've been in, in large crowds before, right? And if there's a shorter person behind you who wants to see, what, what big deal is that to you? It doesn't, it doesn't impact your view at all. You know, if someone short gets in front of you, you can still see just, just as well, right? Uh, so why, if he was short, couldn't he get through the crowd to see Jesus? And I think it's because the crowd wouldn't let him in. The crowd wouldn't let him in because they despised him. Understand that Zacchaeus is up in that tree not because he's short. He's up in that tree because he's despised and rejected by his own people. So now when Jesus comes to Zacchaeus and tells him to come down, that he's going to stay at his house, we miss the gravity and the significance of this in our culture. We need to understand that in a culture like this, hospitality is, is everything. Going to stay at someone's house to share a meal with them, this was a sign of deep welcome and commitment. It was, it, it was a way to show com- committed love. And this is why the crowd is so shocked. Notice this, though. Before Zacchaeus uh, 
changes anything about his life. Jesus was saying, I'm coming into your life first. I'm loving you first. Zacchaeus hasn't changed a thing about his life yet. Remember, the kingdom of God cannot be bought. This is what Isaiah meant when he said, come to the waters, he who has no money, come and buy without money. When it comes to the treasure of the kingdom, we are utterly bankrupt. We don't deserve to be welcomed in. We have no currency with which to buy uh, the kingdom. We can only receive it. It can only be given. And that's exactly what Zacchaeus did. Verse 6 says, he hurried down to receive Jesus with joy. I'm thinking maybe he hurried because he knew this was such a good deal and he didn't want Jesus to change his mind, right? If I delay, maybe he'll be like, ah, never mind. Uh, He knew this was a big deal. So he's hurrying down that tree as fast as he can. You see, Jesus called Zacchaeus out of that tree where he was despised and rejected and in fact deserved to be there. And later, Jesus would climb a different tree where he would be despised and rejected, something that he didn't deserve. Jesus took the place of a man who deserved to be despised and rejected. But how can he do this? How can he welcome a man like Zacchaeus who did such despicable things? How can he just forgive him? It's because Jesus would pay for them on the tree that he would climb later. Zacchaeus came down from being despised and rejected because Jesus would climb up and be despised and rejected. Remember, you cannot buy the kingdom of God. You can only receive it. But that doesn't mean that the kingdom is cheap. The kingdom of God is the most expensive, valuable treasure there is. And the price of admission is the very blood of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's not free. It's not cheap. Someone had to pay for it. And Jesus paid for it. There's a great poem by George Herbert called The Sacrifice, and in it he imagines uh, these words of Christ spoken from the tree, from the cross. Uh, Looking down from the cross, he writes, "O O all ye who pass by, behold and see. Man stole the fruit, but I must climb the tree. The tree of life to all, but only me. The cross is the tree of life for us. It was the tree of death for Christ, but the tree of life for us. And the only reason we can come down out of that tree is because Christ went up into it to die and rise again in order to purchase for all of us who have no money that we might believe and receive a treasure of unimaginable worth. Zacchaeus received the priceless treasure without cost because it was paid in full by Jesus on the cross. It's worth pausing here to say to anyone here today, will you come down? Will you come down and receive the welcome of Jesus with joy like Zacchaeus did? 
You see how incredible this treasure is? Now let's see how having this treasure changes our lives like it changed Zacchaeus' life. How does the treasure change? Verse 7, the crowd sees what's going on and they complain. They complain that Jesus would do such a thing for such a big fat sinner. And look what happens next. Something radically changed in Zacchaeus' heart. Remember, his God was his riches. That's what gave him his self-worth and his identity. But now he sees the incomparable worth of Jesus and he no longer needs money to know that he's worth something. Now, now suddenly none of his riches matter anymore. Do you know how to break the gravitational pull of an object in space? You have to introduce something with a greater mass. And this is what happened to Zacchaeus. Before, his heart was stuck in orbit around his money and his possessions. But now, something far more valuable has caught his eye and has broken the gravitational pull of his riches. He can give it all away with joy because now he has an infinitely greater treasure in Jesus Christ. Notice it says that he gives away half of his wealth to the poor and then he repays all the people that he swindled fourfold. What's going on here? Well, Jesus says in verse 9, this is evidence that salvation has come to Zacchaeus' house. Zacchaeus has in fact received the treasure. He's received the grace of God. Check out how Paul writes to the Corinthian church about the grace of God. In 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Now, because Jesus sacrificed his wealth when he died on the cross to give us life, People who've received that grace want to use their wealth now in life-giving ways, pushing it out into ministry and to bless the poor. It's just like how thunder always follows a lightning strike. When the grace of God strikes a person's life, the person becomes so gracious with their, their wealth like the thunder that follows the lightning. It's just so natural when the grace of God strikes you that you become life-giving with your, your possessions and, and with your wealth. Now, sometimes in church circles, people will ask, how much should I give? Here, Zacchaeus gave half of everything. How much should I give? And oftentimes, people are quick to say, well, you should tithe, you should tithe. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. I don't, I'm, I'm not against tithing, uh, tithing, by the way, means a tenth. So it's a ten, 10%. So you give 10% uh, of your, your wealth, your income. But I want to share a word of caution here with you because as soon as you throw out a number or, or a percentage, you open the door to potential legalism, which can either lead to guilt or to pride. In fact, in Luke 18... Jesus tells a story about a Pharisee and a tax collector. And the Pharisee pridefully boasts that he gives a tenth of everything he has. 
And yet, Jesus says that it was not him, but it was the sinner who walked away justified. So you can, you can tithe and be on your way to hell. I'm just telling you. you know? So don't, don't think that that's you know, a, a badge of honor or that that's doing something for you, right? Uh, that's not the point. But it gets even more complex than tithing or not tithing because in Luke 11, Jesus seems to approve of some of the tithing that the Pharisees did. But then Jesus tells the rich young ruler in chapter 18, right before Zacchaeus here, he tells him, give, away, give it all away, give 100%. And here in eight, chapter 18, now he, you see Zacchaeus giving away half and Jesus is saying salvation has come to his house. So which is it? is it? Is it a tenth? Is it half? Is it everything? I think the problem is that in conversations like this, we're just asking the wrong question. We shouldn't be asking, how much do I have to give? Instead, if we've truly received the greatest treasure heaven can give, we should be asking, how much can I give? How much can I give? It's fascinating, when Paul writes to the Corinthians about the generosity of the Macedonian churches, uh, because it, it appears that uh, because these believers were in poverty uh, and, and suffering great affliction, it appears that uh, Paul uh, and maybe some of the other apostles were giving them a pass for giving to meet the needs of the saints. You know, maybe saying, hey, hey, we know that you don't have a lot of money, so don't feel bad, you don't don't give anything. You know, you don't have to do that. Uh, and, and look what happens. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1 to 5, I'll read this for us. We want you to know, brothers, so he's writing to the Corinthians again about the Macedonian churches. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches in Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their, on their part. I'm just going to stop there. How do those things have any business being together in one sentence? You have severe tests of affliction in extreme poverty combined with an abundance of joy and overflowing in generosity. How do those things go together? It can only be because of the grace of God. Now let's move on. For they, it says, for they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. Now get this. This is, this is incredible. Next it says, they were begging us, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. In other words, they're being given a pass. Hey, you don't have to give. Don't worry about it. You're, you're poor. You're afflicted. No one's going to expect you to give anything. And they're saying, no, no, please, we want to give. Let us give. We want to give. They're begging to give, to take part in the relief of the saints. They're begging to give. It's because the grace, this is how the passage started. It's the grace of God. Paul's saying, let me tell you about the grace of God. Let me tell you about the lightning strike that happened in the churches in Macedonia and the thunder that resulted in their overflowing joy and their giving and their generosity. 
even though they were afflicted and impoverished. And Paul ends with this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. So instead of asking, how much should I give? Should it be a tenth? Should it be, what if I can't give a tenth? Could it, you know, uh, what number, what percentage? That's the wrong question. The better question is, how much can I give? How much can I give? Because the principle in the New Testament is not a number or a percentage. It's, it's a joyful sacrifice. It's not a hard percentage. Some may be able to give well above a tithe, and it wouldn't even impact their standard of living at all, a single bit. But if the standard is sacrifice, maybe they should be giving more than a tenth. If it doesn't impact them at all, a tenth is just kind of a drop in the bucket. I can't tell you how much to give. That's between you and God. I can only ask you, how much have you been given by Christ? Think on that, meditate on that for a little while and see what that does to your heart. And the Holy Spirit can guide you to what is joyful and sacrificial for you. And trust me, if you've discovered the treasure of the kingdom of heaven, like the man in the parable and like, G- and like Zacchaeus, then you won't have to ask. You'll know. You'll just know how much to give. It'll be a sacrifice, but it'll be joyful. It'll be a joyful one. I end with this from Philippians 3, 7 to 8. Paul says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. May that be our hearts, church. May that define our hearts that we might gain Christ. May we consider our our money, our treasures, our possessions as loss because we want to use them in ways that are life-giving because we've been given eternal life in Jesus Christ. The knee-jerk reaction to that is to to bless, to use our, our resources to give life. When you give to our church, it, it's not only funding the ministry of our church and, and advancing the gospel here in our community that gives life, it also funds missionaries going around the world, sharing the good news of Jesus Christ that brings life around the world. May there be such a lightning strike of grace here in our church and in our hearts that our giving just overflows with joy and, and you know, and, and the the problem then would be like, what do we do with all this? <laughs> you know, what what how how can we bless more people? How can we, um, you know, maybe take on more missionaries and send more people to the farthest ends of the earth where we can't go, or or maybe we go ourselves. Maybe some of you, God here is is stirring in your heart to go somewhere. Maybe it sounds crazy right now, but maybe, maybe God is sending you somewhere whether it's through 
giving of your resources or going yourself, selling everything you have and going, you know? God calls some people to do that. Sell everything you have and, and go, go on, get on that mission field. You know, go to that tribe, go to that, that country where there's uh, a high percentage of, of unreached people. Or maybe he's calling you to, to give more, to, to fund people who sell it all to go, right? But let that be uh, a defining characteristic of our church, that, that the lightning strike of the grace of God has caused us to overflow in joyful giving. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for the treasure that we have in Jesus Christ. May it break the gravitational pull that our stuff has on our hearts, that we might be free, free to let go of our things, free to give it, that we might bless others in life-giving ways. Father, I pray for those for whom uh, the grace of God has not yet been understood or experienced. Father, I pray that lightning would strike in hearts here this morning, that you would open eyes to the unimaginable wealth of the kingdom of God that cannot be bought, it can only be given and received. Father, I pray that many here today who need it would receive it. That great joy would come into their lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.